Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Today is October 30th, 2020. We are just days away from a very important election. Um, joining me as co-host today are... I'm Linda Vieira from Indivisible Acton. I'm Karen Rose. And I'm Laura Benesi from the Boston Red Cloaks. And we have a very, very special guest today. We have Senator Harriet Chandler. Senator Chandler has been in the State House since 1995. She was first a state representative, and now she is a senator. And we are delighted to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. We are curious about um, what it was first like when you were in the State House in 1995 and what the landscape was. There were very few women there, very few women of color, and how that's uh, changed over time. Or has it changed over time? It has changed, but ever so slightly. In 1995, when I entered this, the State House, uh, we had about 25% women. And you know something, we have just about 30% now. Much of that has come in the last two elections. We stayed at the 25% at the level for a very long time. But one of the most important things to me in entering the State House in 1995, we did not have a choice majority in 1995. In fact, it, we counted it very carefully and Mass NARAL, when they heard that I was pro-choice, they were so excited about it that they sent a team to, to Worcester to help me to run in that first election. And I had no idea what I was doing. So that team was very important. And there had been women there for probably 30 years, but, but not many, not a lot, not enough to make a difference. The issue of choice has always been something that concerns me. And if you don't mind, can I give you a little bit about my background because you'll understand better. I'm of the age, I'm sure some of your viewing public will remember this, uh, where every day and every week, we saw newspaper stories of terrible, terrible problems that came as a result of backstreet abortions. Abortions that were botched, women were maimed, women were killed, and it became, it, it, it was almost a, a, something that we had come to expect. And 1973 came along and Roe v. Wade came along and life changed for women because women for the first time really had some control over their reproductive life. That made a huge, huge difference. But at the same time in Massachusetts, there was a backlash. When that Roe was, was proclaimed at the, at the Supreme Court level, at the state level, uh, we were still a, a state that was very concerned about such things. And so we, there, there was a number of legislative actions that were taken uh, by the legislative majority, who were men, who made sure that Roe v. Wade was tempered. And part of that was the nasty women issue, if you remember, which I led a few years ago. I mean, I've been kind of consistent through my, my career about making sure we clean away these things, remove them, remove these obstacles. But we still have a few in our laws that need to be removed. I guess I am motivated by my, my very thorough understanding of what life was like pre-Row. And when I hear efforts to, to stop Row, to turn the clock back, that's just what we would be doing, turning it back to the backstreet abortionists, to the fact that women, women really didn't have full control over their own bodies. I don't want that to happen. How do you feel that the, um, that 
that the environment, the access to reproductive health has changed since 1995? Oh, I think it has changed to the point that younger women take it for granted. They take for granted the fact that it's there, that it's always been there, that they don't remember any time when it wasn't there. And I guess I am older and I have a very clear memory. And I don't want for my daughter and my granddaughter, I have one of each, I don't want them to go through that. Or for the daughters and granddaughters and the future women of the state, I don't want them to have to go through that. I don't want them to talk about uh, do I fall down a flight of stairs to take to remove this? What do I do to temper this? Do I use coat hangers? I mean, these are the terrible stories that were so present in my youth, and I don't want to return there. I know what it means. Abortion is health care. Abortion is an issue uh, between a, a woman and her doctor, and it's not. It should not involve the state. It should not involve the courts. It should not involve anybody else but the prospective mother and her doctor. This is a medical issue. This isn't a criminal action. I am of the age where I do remember the bad old days. And we recently had a discussion about the um, rabbit test with another one of our uh, guests. So it was very courageous for you to step forward amidst all the throng and put forth the Roe Act. What, what was that like? Did you have support? I can easily tell where the courage came from. How about the, the legislative steps? How did you, did you have to rally other, other people? Did you have to endless talks until midnight? Tell us about that instant, bringing that forth. We're still rallying. It never stops. Uh, but clearly, I don't think it took courage at all on my part. It was the rational thing to do. I don't want women to have to go through what young women had to go through in my day. There should be no stigma. There should be no concern about healthcare. My God, Massachusetts has the greatest healthcare probably in the world. And yet we have this awful situation where if a woman needs, doesn't, it's not want, but needs to have a late term abortion because there is a fatal fetal anomaly that has been diagnosed by her doctor and the doctor has is very clear that the, the fetus cannot live outside of the womb and therefore the woman would be relieved of having to go through the remainder of a, of, of a pregnancy in order to give birth to a, to a fetus that is not going to survive. That shouldn't happen. She shouldn't have to go to a Colorado or go to New Mexico. She shouldn't have to incur those kinds of expenses to deal with that kind of a trip. The COVID-19 situation we are in makes this even worse. And we're seeing that in terms of what it is. So what we've always had to do in anything that involves reproductive rights is as anyone has to do in anything involving any kind of bill in the legislature is to count. It's simple arithmetic. You need to have a majority. And so from day one, we start counting. How many people do we have that will stand with us on this? And in the old days, that's the 1995, 96, 98, 2000 years, we really had to depend on women and the very few courageous men who would stand with us. Because at that point in time, 
the church was rallying their supporters to vote against, uh, to, to vote the people who would possibly vote with us out of office. I mean, that's a terrible thing to have to do, but that was the way it was. As younger people came into office in the last 20 years, I mean, I've been around a long time. This is my 26th year in the legislature. What we're seeing are young people who also come to accept and take for granted the fact that abortion exists and they don't see any problem with it or any, any, any concern about it. Those are the younger people. And so as time has gone on, more and more men have joined us. It has made a huge difference. I believe that when put to a test, hopefully we will have such a test before this term is over, we will have the votes to pass this. Votes are simple. It's a simple majority and you, you must have the votes. I think it's much more than a simple majority that we will have when it does come to a vote. One thing that's been a little frustrating for us as voters is the lack of accountability because for many people, they know their legislator is definitely on board. Um, perhaps their senator is posting on Facebook or has given a talk where they explain that they support the Roe Act. And some people have come out and said flat out, no. But there's a middle group where people really don't know what their legislators will do. And it's frustrating that we have elections coming up and people have to vote on a candidate without actually knowing. So I think one thing we would like to understand is how the timing of this has shifted outside of COVID. So I was there when you introduced it at the State House. I think I met Laura that day um, back in January 2019. And maybe I met Karen too. It was, it was a great day. The the hall with the flags was filled with people. You were standing there. Karen Spilka was there. Delia was there. There are a lot of great people talking, even some young people who were talking about the impact on teenagers. Great atmosphere. And it's been a long process. We're here almost yes. two years later. So can you talk us through how did it, how did you introduce it? How does it get assigned to a committee? It moved from one committee to another. Who directs that? How does that happen? Every bill is introduced, every bill is heard. The decision of where the bill goes is decided by the clerk in the House, the clerk in the Senate. Sometimes the bills might be the same bill, a House bill and a Senate bill, but they could go to two different places. In this case, they went to, the bill went to judiciary. That was not an easy choice. I really think it's a public health issue, uh, and that's where it, it should have been decided and should have gone on from there but that is not the way it was seen. And you take, you know, you don't have any say in that. That is the way it's been, it was decided. And so it went to judiciary. It's a complicated bill. And we know that it deeply affects the lives of women and young people. We never expected it to pass quickly. We never expected it to come through a committee and get out. That isn't the way it works. And as it happened, the House chair of judiciary was given the responsibility of doing the police reform bill too. And that was a pretty heavy lift for her and a, a major bill, as you know. It is still in conference committee at this point in time. Uh, and that bill has yet to come out. So we're kind of, you know, there, there's sort of a, a backing up. It's taken us a little time to truly understand the nuances of this. It's taken the committee 
a little time to truly understand the nuances of the legislation. The chair of, I, I believe both chairs, have spoken to doctors and lawyers and legislators and uh, anyone else who might be touched by this. They've done a very thorough job, a very th thorough job. And everyone understands this is a very important bill. It will make a huge difference in people's lives. And added to this in March came COVID. So we have not been, I have not been back to the legislature into the state house since March. We're operating totally from our own homes and we're op operating totally uh, basically by phone and by computer. And it's affected our timeline. It's made seeking abortion care even more difficult. The Judiciary Committee has had to work diligently on the matter of urgent police reform at the same time. And it's not easy to do this by from a distance. It really is not easy. By Zoom, everything is by Zoom now, basically, right? Yeah. Or go to meeting. So, so one quick question is, it looked like on the public record, it went to public health, but then got reassigned to Judiciary Committee. Does the judiciary part literally mean because this uh, Roe Act has a section that talks about judicial bypass? Is that why it's in judiciary? I think it was just a decision that was okay. made. I don't think it was anything quite as intent as intense as that. I, I would like to think so, but I don't I don't think that was the reason. It it was it went from one committee, public health, to uh, to judiciary. You're absolutely correct. That really helps. So for us on this call who are all supporters, it doesn't seem that complex or nuanced. We have talked to a lot of people though, and we, you know, we hear many people's opinions. Starting with the definitions, it seems brilliant that you address the definitions. The definitions feel like they were written in 1974. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, a lot of people who are pregnant do not consider themselves mothers just because they're pregnant. It's a very non-medical definition in there. I can interrupt you for a moment. Some people say to us, you know, it would be so much simpler. Why don't you just pass Roe v. Wade and leave it at that. But if we pass Roe v. Wade and put it and leave it at that, some of these things that we're trying to correct would be left out. And if we're going to do it, our thought is let's do it right. Let's do it right the first time so that we, we have something we can be proud of and we can live with for, for all eternity, if you will. So it that, makes, you know, it makes that sense. You? It, yeah, it makes so much sense. And I think that core definition, I didn't know our definitions until until I came there in January and went home and looked them up. And I was, I was sort of shocked. Now, with the passing of Justice Ginsburg, it feels like the oh. urgency has completely shifted. So, so the day we're recording this is day 501 since the hearing that was held where all of us were there um, and many other red cloaks who were in plain clothing that day, not dressed as handmaids, but... <laughs> huge difference. And I just want to thank you for all that you've done to further this bill. We're, we're not going to stop, apparently, until it's passed. Here we are. The Supreme Court is literally shifted in the last 10 days, 15 days. It's We've lost a person who had a deep commitment to civil rights, not just reproductive rights or reproductive freedom, but civil rights. And the replacement is someone who is publicly has a record of being absolutely opposed. And we've even seen a couple of decisions come out recently around free and fair elections. Right. That's right. So you're going. Right. Kavanaugh and Kagan have disagreed about whether you can count votes after midnight on election day. We won't get into that. So 
for us, it feels like we really need our legislators to come forward now and pass the Roe Act now, because we have people who need healthcare now, and we want them to be safe. COVID makes it worse for them if they're in a violent relationship, if they're raped, you know, for any reason, if they are pregnant and they need that health care, why do they have to go through even a moment of extra emotional suffering, not knowing the state is behind them? How do you feel like that, that urgency is coming through? But is it resonating? It is resonating and, and we are aware of it and we're trying so hard to move this along. But we're dealing with lots of egos and personalities and uh, other pieces of the legislation that are, need to be heard and need to be done as well. And we're trying to be to push this along. Uh, my three outside advocates, uh, and these are the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and Mass NARAL, have been wonderful. And they've been very supportive and they have been very understanding. It's not easy for any of us to have to wait the length of time we have waited. But you know, it, we understand the way legislation is developed. And I think that once it happens, once it's ready to go, it's still in committee, remember. And uh, we, I know that the, uh, the, the chairs of, of the committee want this to be a good, strong bill that they can support that can get the support of both houses of the legislature. That's very important. So they've heard everybody's concerns uh, and they're trying to write that kind of a bill. I think they're close to it. I hope they're close to it. We really understand that we have to remove the old statutes. We have to provide insurance coverage for, uh, for, for, for women who have come from low incomes. So we find that this is a totally unfair situation to women of color who come from low incomes. And we know that there are policy changes that need to be made. And those, that's, that's the bill, that's the whole bill. Uh, but you've got to get buy-in for, for, for the bill. And we want to bring the bill in with a, a significant majority. This is not a bill that should pass by one or two votes. This should be a significant majority. Senator, there's been a lot of talk about compromise on the bill, especially it seems to be around the judicial bypass. A lot of uh, parents revolt against it. Is that what's holding this up? I don't think it's judicial bypass so much, but we want to get rid of judicial bypass. Judicial bypass, we've, it has been shown in a study by Brigham and Women's Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and Planned Parenthood, that young people who navigated the judicial bypass process and received a judge's permission, and almost every, in almost every case, they received the judge's permission. You should remember that. They were on, a, on an average delayed 14.8 days. And this is a situation where every day matters. You don't delay. I don't even know how a young person has the, the wherewithal to get involved in a judicial bypass. It's a very difficult thing um, to ask a judge's permission to make a choice about their pregnancy. That seems wrong to me. And I, I mean, I hope that that is removed. The decision should be made not with the judge, the decision should be made not with a judge or with a court, it should be made by the young woman and her doctor. Those are the deciders, not the, not the others. I think you're right though, if I could pick up on that, there is some concern about 
there is no age attached to this. That may be something that we will see. I don't. I don't know. Actually, I have a, a state rep who is hundred and fifty percent against the act, and recently said, "Oh, you know, thirteen-year-olds will be able to get abortions." And that's one of the reasons he's against it. But the bigger question is, how did that child get pregnant? That is the bigger question. And quite frankly, that child got pregnant because she didn't have to go through judicial bypass to do that, did she? Hmm. What we're, we're hoping is that judicial bypass, most people, most young women can talk to their parents. But there are extreme cases where they can't talk about it. There can be incest in, in, in the family. There can be a foster family involved. There can be a variety of, of, of issues. And that's why we can't always depend upon a child being able to talk to a parent. I just want to reflect back to this past Sunday when well, the Red Cloaks were able to have a, a tremendous show of presence and attract a lot of uh, attention from places where we've never had it before, like the globe. And that was hard because of COVID. But we had this, tr this wonderful group of committed women, many of them for the first time, marching with us in unison and silence and standing uh, proudly to show their support for all people for whom reproductive justice is vital. How do we move this? How do we move this forward? Is there something? You just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> it is not going unnoticed. You're picking up people. You're picking up uh, your supporters along the way. You're picking up people. And I think in its own way, uh, the, the new Justice Barrett is one of the reasons that people are more concerned than ever. I think they understand now what can happen. This is real. This is not something that could be. We've always talked about how important the Supreme Court is in deciding what our election, in deciding who to vote for in, in, in a presidential election. Well, now we see exactly how important it can be. Um, and we realize, as was stated so, so well by, uh, by Jesse, that this, this woman uh, is going to turn the clock back, way, way, way back. So please, please keep doing what you're doing. It is not going unnoticed. It is attracting people who say, what can I do? And the point is, what they can do is join you. They can write to their representatives and their senators. They can write to the Senate president and the Speaker of the House. They can get the attention because it really we have the support out there. We've just got to put it to the floor. We've got to get a bill out of committee and put it to a vote. That's just what it is. And thank you, thank you, thank you from all of us in the legislature who've worked hard to support your concerns. We're here because of you and you have to understand that. Uh, you've stood silently, but you've made your point. And now it's time for us to act. I think I may cry. Me too. <laughs> you deserve to be honored. You're our heroines. You are our heroines. For us, for us, it's the other way because seeing you that day back in January 2019, I was very, very moved, really moved because it has been a long fight since you got there to get that needle move forward. And it's hard to have the knowledge we on this call have 
it's a lot to carry around. And once, once that election night came in 2016, we saw what was gonna happen and the world is seeing it too. Thank you so very much. And you're running again, and we know you're unopposed, but we know that candidates across the state influence what happens to you, no matter what city or town, you live in this Commonwealth. So you really need to have your eyes open and figure out who you wanna to support to make change. That's the first question I've always asked. Where do you stand on choice? And mm -hmm. that's what every woman should ask. Where do you stand on choice? We know where you stand. We stand with you. Thank you for making time to have this conversation with us this morning. We agree police reform is critical, really critical to get past. And it's hopefully going to be a very productive November. We will be fighting for this tomorrow, next week, every day until it's passed. It's been our pleasure and, and we will stand with you and get this bill passed.